Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingas. Shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready, because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss... Choosing between privacy and personalization. A meal prep delivery with only part of the meal. And how consumer preferences for online reviews are evolving. Data, protein, and Google. Oh my. There are so many great customer experience articles to read. But who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. Welcome, everyone, to episode 160 of the Experience This Show. I tell you, every time we hit an episode that ends in a zero, Joey, I can't (laughs) believe we're still doing it, but we are. It's all excited. It's like an anniversary episode every 10 episodes for Dan. It's very exciting. I may or may not be one of those guys that watches the odometer on the car for those special numbers, you know, when it rolls over. But it's anyway, okay. it's okay. Astute listeners may remember that we had an agree to disagree segment back in season five, episode 101, where Joey and I debated the virtues of privacy versus convenience. I think I won that debate. <laughs> you have a unique relationship with truth, but that's okay. That's okay. Well, this question has now expanded into a discussion of personalization and just how personalized consumers want their experiences to be, or really how much data they want to give up to get it. So today's CX Press article is titled, Is It Possible to Have Both Privacy and Personalization? And it's written by Michelle Hawley at CMS Wire. Michelle writes quite ominously, quote, Brands know where you live, who your friends are, where you went to school. They know you're watching YouTube videos when you're supposed to be at work, that you looked at a picture of an ex in the middle of the night, and for how long. According to Statista, in 2021, global internet users generated more than 216 exabytes of data per day. To put that into perspective, your average home computer holds 500 gigabytes of data. Over a billion gigabytes is just one exabyte. And there are 216 oh, exabytes of data per day. Oh my gosh. That I, I can't, I, I was told there would be no math in this program. And but your brain's already exploding. Yeah, that's gigantic, gigantic amounts of data. All right. So Michelle continues, this information sought out by businesses gets fed into AI or artificial intelligence systems, allowing them to predict with high accuracy how a person will behave. Those systems then make actionable recommendations to prod a customer to click more, read longer, and or purchase a product or service. In essence, it changes people's perceptions and actions surrounding a brand. 
you know, how all of this data is coming together and the insights, especially thanks to AI that is giving brands are, I agree, it's ominous, it's terrifying, right? Uh, About three years ago, two and a half years ago, I saw some research that said, if you like something on Facebook, you know, press that little thumbs up button, like something. Once you've done 150 likes, Facebook is better at predicting whether you will like the next image or story they put in front of you than your spouse is. And at 300 likes, they're better at predicting it than you are. Oh boy. These amount, the, the amount of data, the sheer amount of data we're dealing with, and because of AI, our ability to actually crunch the data and do things with it, it's just staggering. You know, in 2021, a survey conducted by KPMG noted that 86% of people said they were concerned about data privacy and 68% were uneasy about the amount of information collected. Some 30% said they won't share any personal data for any reason. So what can we do about this privacy conundrum? The article suggests four ways companies can adopt a privacy-first mindset. Number one, look at the data strategies of brands that customers trust. According to a Morning Consult report from 2021, the top eight most trusted brands are Google, PayPal, Microsoft, YouTube, Amazon, Sony, Adidas, and Netflix. I got to admit, where's Apple on that list, right? I hear a lot of people talking about the fact that they think Apple's approach to data and privacy is really good. So I'm surprised not to see Apple on there. But I digress. Number two, create a digital data policy that covers every potential situation, such as cookies, copyrights, data breaches, spam, and online piracy. Number three, audit your data collection. Take a look at all of the data your company collects and make sure all the pieces are still feeding information to one another. With this approach, you can visualize how your data streams connect and trim away the excess, simplifying insight processes. Now, you might remember, Joey, because I've told this story before, that when I was at Discover, one of the things that we did with the card application process was reduce the number of questions that we were asking Because some bright person figured out that no one was using the data for a lot of the answers. (laughs) And it was not being used for a credit decision. So we reduced it. I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I want to say it was about 14 questions. We brought it down to seven. And not surprisingly, the completion rate on the applications went way up because it was a whole lot easier to complete. And so at the end of the day, we ended up approving more people because of it because we got more applications. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pieces of that that would be fun to dissect, not the least of which is you make it easier to uh, complete the application. You make it easier to use the data. Lots of times the questions we're asking about are things that even if we had the data, we don't want to do anything with it. So for example, anytime I'm on a page that asks for a fax number, I'm like, really? I haven't sent a fax in a decade. What are you even talking about? So I think doing a regular kind of audit of what you're collecting and how you're using it makes perfect sense. Which brings us to the fourth way that a company can adopt a privacy-first mindset, and that is give people more control which results in an efficiency gain and the collection of higher quality data. What does user control over data look like? Well, it could simply mean allowing users to fine-tune their preferences. 
such as the type of content they want to see, how often they want brands to communicate with them, what days and times they prefer to receive communications, and the best channels for brands to communicate. So, Joey, if we re-recorded our Agree to Disagree segment and the two sides were privacy versus personalization, what would you say are your current feelings about each one? You know, here's the fascinating thing. You remember this specific episode. I don't even remember which side of the argument I took. (laughs) But, uh, you know, such is life, you know, being a recovering attorney. I'm happy to take either side of the argument. You know, here's the thing. I don't think it's an either or conversation. There are some brands that I am more than okay with the fact that they have my information because as that first point on the list uh, indicates, I trust them. Now, whether I should trust them or not kind of is a separate conversation. But if I do trust them and I give them the information and they use that information to personalize the experience, that's a net positive. I was recently staying with a friend and, uh, you know, we're at their house and I need to get on their Wi-Fi. Now, when I asked, I had my phone with me. So I type it in. But if you're on an Apple product, if anybody is in your contacts list in the house who's trying to get on that Wi-Fi, it'll say like, hey, Joe, he's trying to get on the Wi-Fi. Do you want to let him in? And you don't even have to tap it in. You can just share the password that way. Those type of sharings are kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, slight breaches of privacy so that I can have a more personalized experience. I'm all about it. But what about you? I candidly think I'm probably too trusting. I don't you know, go post my social security number or anything anywhere. But I do feel like there's not much we can do anymore about the amount of data that companies have about us. I definitely, uh, as I get more and more requests for cookies on websites, I decline those more often than I accept them because I don't really like being tracked around the internet. But look, I also like a personalized experience. So I do think that there's a balance. And I think you can make an argument for either one. And and your customers probably are too, right? There are certain of your customers, as, as the stat said earlier, that... Uh, you know, certain people are never going to release information about themselves at all. And others want total customization and personalization. And so they don't care how much data you have. So at the end of the day, I think this is a good debate to have internally in your company and to understand how much data you're collecting, where you're collecting it, and if you're using it all. And folks, if you're not using it, do yourself a favor and avoid troubles later and just stop collecting it. Vivian has joined the meeting. Hey, Vivian. Good to see you. Thanks for joining for today's call about our new accounting oversight program. We're going to be implementing it next quarter, and I'm looking forward to your input about the compliance aspects. Yeah, it's good to see you too, Todd. To be honest, I wasn't sure what this meeting was all about or or why I was invited since I work in sales, but it's nice to see you nonetheless. Frank has joined the meeting. Hey, Frank. Hey, Vivian. Hey, Frank. Hey, Todd. I'm glad you could join us for today's call about our new accounting oversight. Pierre has joined the meeting. Hey, Pierre. I'm Vivian. Allô, I'm Pierre. Enchanté, Vivian. Uh, hey, hey, Pierre. Todd, have you guys met before? We have. As I was saying, I'm glad you could join us for today's call about our new accounting. 
Frankie has joined the meeting. Maria has joined the meeting. Victor has joined the meeting. Hey, Frankie, Maria, and Victor, and Todd here, along with Viviane, and Pierre, and Frank. And as I was saying before you arrived, I'm glad you could all join us for today's call about our new... Raphael has joined the meeting. Jen O has joined the meeting. Jen L has joined the meeting. Hey, Raphael and the Jens. We've got Todd, Viviane, Pierre, Frank, Frankie, Maria, and Victor on the call already. And as I was saying before you arrived, I'm glad you could all join us for today's call about our... Paulo has joined the meeting. Yeah, as I was saying, I'm glad... Jen S. has joined the meeting. Why are you here, Jen S.? Oh, I was on the calendar invite, so I just clicked the link and joined. Hey, Pierre. Hello, Jen. It's always the pleasure. Oh, my. Pierre, enough. As I was saying. Marquesa has joined the meeting. Jennifer has joined the meeting. Todd has ended the meeting. As hybrid work environments become more common, holding high-quality virtual meetings is becoming even more challenging. Before the pandemic, around 5% of employees spent at least part of their time working remotely. Going forward, that number is expected to be 40 to 50%. Companies must work to improve meeting culture for everyone involved. A big part of that is respecting employees' time and recognizing that it is valuable to both the employee and the organization. Collaboration is best done with two to four people, six at the very most. Any more than that, and it will be difficult for everyone to weigh in and be heard, which is presumably why they're there in the first place. The team at Mitel are experts in creating the right culture and experience for employees, regardless of location. Their tools, technologies, and thought leadership on remote and hybrid working solutions make it easy for your teams to stay productive wherever they are and regardless of how big your team is. Take a few minutes to visit mitel.com slash experience this. That's M-I-T-E-L, mitel.com slash experience this. And download Making Meetings Better in the Hybrid Workplace a new ebook that will help you rethink how collaboration should work in this new environment. Visit mytel.com slash experience this and make your meetings better starting today. You listen to us. Now we want to listen to you. By visiting our website and sharing your remarkable customer experiences with us, we can share them with a broader audience. Now sit back and enjoy our listener stories. Today's listener story comes from Chris Boyvin, who is the Assistant Director of Community Relations and Marketing at the Jacksonville Public Library in Florida, which I might add, I'm sure houses copies of both The Experience Maker and Never Lose a Customer again. Oh, we love our public libraries. Thanks for reaching out to us, Chris. We do. And Chris writes in with the following story, and I'm quoting. We've been subscribing to a meal prep box service for a few months now. We love the convenience and the meals are always good and more than often than not, totally beyond our expectations. Yesterday, our box arrived short of the protein, which were steaks, for two meals. 
Email, website help, and chatbot were easy to find. But as usual, it was painful to find the phone number. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt your chair. Uh, I see where this is going already. It did exist, though. So after waiting for a few hours to see if I'd get an email response... I didn't get one. I called to follow up on my email slash chatbot inquiries. The rep who answered the phone was friendly enough, if not a little exasperated. You could hear them rolling their eyes. The one thing that really got me was when she pointed out that they had received my email and we would have gotten to it within 24 hours, but okay, we can resolve it now. I was more than a little dejected to be told that if I had just waited a day, I probably would have gotten a response but they might as well help since I called. I was hoping they would ship out replacements so I could complete the meals. I now have all the rest of the fresh ingredients sitting idle. Tick, tick, tick. And they mumbled something about preferring that instead of shipping me the proteins, they'd rather credit me and I can get them myself. So that's what they did, which is fine. But the tone of the rep, some of the comments along the way, setting the expectation that I should bend to their preference and that, we would have gotten back to you eventually, remark, made it less than a glowing CX tail. Now, Joey, I intentionally did not name the prep box service because we have a policy here on Experience This that we don't really want to call out brands that are not doing it right. But I do think we have a number of things we might be able to poke some holes at on this experience. Oh my goodness. I'm literally in the first sentence And it tells me a significant amount about what I need to know about the story. Now, for those of you that may have forgotten what the first sentence of Chris's share was, we've been subscribing to a meal prep box service for a few months now. So we're paying every month. We're paying to get food from you. And we've been loyal, consistent customers for several months. Months. Yeah, and I might add, uh, not to correct you, Joey, but most meal prep box services are every week. Yeah, so. exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah, so they're literally hitting them with a charge theoretically every week, or maybe you've subscribed for the month, but they are loyal, consistent customers for a few months. And what really stood out to me, and I don't know if this is true or not, when I always hear a few months, I think somewhere around 100 days. And oh, that magical first 100 days when all the impressions that you make in the customer experience create the foundation for lifelong relationships. And here, when we go to the second sentence or third sentence, the box arrived short of the protein steaks for two meals. Like this isn't, hey, the box didn't have the little twig of cilantro I was looking for. (laughs) Or, hey, the box had the carrots and the celery, but it didn't have the onions. Yes, these things would have impacted the meal. But when you're missing the steak, and maybe it's just because I'm a Midwestern kid, I'm thinking you're missing the meal. Like everything else is the garnish and the dressing that goes around the core reason we're sitting down to dinner and subscribing to a meal prep box service. Yeah, I'll tell you, I agree with all of that, Joey. One of the things I loved about what Chris wrote, and I I tried to uh, have it come out a little bit in how I was reading it, is that he's got a lot of emotion. You can tell there's a lot of emotion in this, right? They're, they're, the, the meals are always good, more often than not, totally beyond their expectations. He talks about the exasperated rep. I mean, when we call customer service, do we really want someone who's exasperated? That is not the kind of experience that we expect. I love that he that you know he got this sort of almost sarcasm from this person about well you know if you had just waited 24 hours for you know we would have emailed you back. So 
I think there were a lot of opportunities here. And, and, um, and when you talk about those first 100 days, what's interesting here is that we know from experience that when something goes wrong, that is a moment of truth. And we know the, the data shows over and over again that customers who have had a problem that has been resolved tend to be more loyal than those that never had a problem in the first place. And I think that comes from psychology and just under and just knowing that this company has my back, that this company is there for me, and that if the chips are down or if something goes wrong, they're going to take care of it. And this company had that opportunity to take care of it, and they missed at every step. And so if I were Chris, I would now know that this company doesn't have my back and I'd go look for another meal prep service. Absolutely. And this is a an industry that didn't exist really 10 years ago and now is super competitive. I mean, I'm constantly getting flyers in the mail, you know, seeing things in the grocery stores. There are so many meal prep services out there. There's a lot of competition. And I imagine the metrics in their business would show that once you're in and have subscribed and have built up a cadence with them, the pain of signing up for someone else is pretty significant. So once they've got you, they want to keep you. Now, two things. Number one, I do have some empathy for the rep, okay? People that work in a call center who are fielding these type of calls definitely spend the bulk of their day with people who are complaining about the situation. And I wasn't on the call, but I get from the tone of Chris's email that he didn't come in all hot and bothered screaming, but it was more like, hey, I don't have the protein. And before he, it sounds like he even really got a chance to explain what was going on. He's getting attitude of, well, we would have gotten to it within 24 hours. That's the second point I wanted to make. Getting back to someone within 24 hours is fine if they've ordered a storage bin online or a jacket or maybe even a pair of shoes. It's not okay when they've ordered dinner, okay? Like I'm not storing up this dinner for six weeks from now. It's dinner now and especially when there are fresh ingredients. The whole point most people sign up for a meal prep box service is to have that regular fresh ingredients coming into the house so they don't have to think about it. And what the rep has basically said is, yeah, why don't you just go out to your local grocery store and get some protein if you want to use the fresh ingredients. But otherwise, we are probably just going to have you get rid of those fresh ingredients and send you something else later. But you still got to figure out what to eat tonight. Yeah, it, it does not solve Chris's problem. And that's really, that's the issue is that he, he had a problem. It is not resolved or it's resolved in some way, but it's not resolved in any satisfying way. And again, I actually, one thing that you said I, I want to disagree with, which is that I think the switching costs are actually very low. You're right that they want to get people on and staying on. And that's because once we get into the habit, it's, you know, it's just habits are hard to break. But it, it's not hard to sign up for a new service. And I think that's the thing that's missing. That, that understanding is missing because there's this assumption that, oh, well, Chris is our customer, so there's no way he's going to go anywhere else. Well, you're wrong. Not you. They are wrong. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. No, and I agree. I guess what the point I was making with the switching too is 
and and maybe this is just my approach, but I think lots of times people find the two or three restaurants they like to go to and they go to those again and again. They find the five or six or eight meals they like to eat and they prepare those again and again and again. Having subscribed to a number of different meal prep services over the years, when you find one that you like, that has the type of cuisine or the flavors or the ease of preparation that you like, as a general rule, you're going to probably stay with them. Now, I agree with you. If something goes wrong, oh, there are dozens of companies lined up to jump in and take their place, which is why we should just pay attention to how we treat them. And last but not least, I have to imagine that if I was sitting in the planning team and I was talking about our product and saying, what could go wrong? Forgetting to ship the steak would have showed up on that list. That's something that could have been anticipated. And so everyone on your customer support team should have the patented answers to the top 10, the top 20 most common things that could go wrong. I got to imagine the food arrived spoiled. You know, the food arrived at the wrong place and didn't show up here later and we didn't have our meals for a couple of days. There's probably 10 things that are the regular issues that customers have. They should have those answers and those responses down beautifully. And even something like, hey, give us your address and we'll DoorDash, you know, dinner to you at our expense. You just tell us what restaurant you want it from. That would create the kind of remarkable experience that'd be the kind of thing that people would want a listener story about. Right. Or even, hey, we'll DoorDash two steaks for you because they didn't come in the box. So we'll get we'll call your local grocery store and we'll get them shipped out to you. And I, so there were many ways that I think this could have been answered. So Chris, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. We do love listener stories around here. And if you would like to share your listener story, please email either one of your two favorite Experience This co-hosts, dan at dangingis.com or joey at joeycoleman.com. And we will include your story in a future episode. Your customers are real people, not numbers in a queue. That's why Help Scout lets you manage conversations, not tickets. Join us now for Conversation Corner. It's Matt here from Help Scout with the question of the week for Conversation Corner, although this one is not as much of a question, Dan. This time I want to tell you a story about my bin, or as you would call it, a trash can. Now, I have one in my kitchen. It's from a brand I think called Simple Human. And I've had it for many years because it was quite expensive at the time and I wanted to get the most out of it. But it was very expensive for what is basically a pedal bin. You know, you press your foot on it and you can throw your garbage in there. And Just coincidentally, at one point in a previous job, I was trying to sell a different SaaS product to someone who was from that same company, Simple Human. And they were asking me, why should I pay more for for this email marketing software that you're trying to sell me? I could get the same thing much cheaper, you know, at our competitor, which was true. You know, we weren't the cheapest option and they did have pretty much the same feature set. And I was able to tell them, well, for the same reason that I bought your super expensive pedal bin, instead of a cheaper one because it will last longer. It's nicer to use. The experience of having it in my kitchen is just more pleasant. It removes a lot of tool-hating energy from my life, uh, which I value. I wonder, Dan, if there is anything in your life where you think about that sort of exchange where things are maybe worth more money than something which theoretically does the same thing. Yeah, I think that's actually a great question. And I think it comes up a lot because we're all brand loyal to some extent. 
And sometimes we do buy the brands that are more expensive. And sometimes we buy the brands that are less expensive, but we like what we like. And that could be a, a kitchen garbage can. It could be laundry detergent. It could be ice cream. It doesn't really matter. We kind of go for the brand that we really like. And I had this conversation with a friend of mine recently about the value of a luxury brand and that everybody values it differently. So if I go to stay at a hotel, I might think that paying $200 a night is expensive. Somebody else might think that that's a really cheap hotel. It's all a matter of perspective, right? And my thought might be, well, a $400 hotel could never be twice as good as a $200 hotel. But somebody else might say, yeah, but a $200 hotel doesn't give me what I need and a $400 hotel does. And so everybody has different values. And I think the key here is that you have to understand what do your customers value? How much do they value the additional price that you have attached to your product? If you think about certain luxury brands, just the name on the product adds so much value that you could literally have the same product and it's going to cost a lot more just because you have the logo on it. For some people, that's a very high value. For others, it isn't. And so knowing your customers is going to help you to price your products at the point, hopefully the ideal point, where they find it to be of great value, however they define that. I would say just quickly that in the, the software world, the world that I come from, there are many, many products like that. Some are more expensive, some are less expensive. And often they have big sets of feature lists that do pretty much the same things. And so choosing between them and picking the right one that suits your particular set of values and what's important to you and how it works the way that you want to work, that really matters. So that's HealthScout's kind of design approach to our software, very thoughtfully designed. It's not about ticking the feature list box. Yeah, totally agree. And as somebody who's bought so much software in the past uh, on the other side, it is absolutely critical, right? Because you might come in and say, you can solve every problem I have, but your software is really expensive. The thing is, I don't need you to solve every problem I have. I need you to solve these two problems. And that's kind of what I'm willing to pay for. So it's great that Help Scout understands that. If you want to learn more about Help Scout, but also get some great content related to the show from a customer experience, customer service perspective, go to helpscout.com slash experience this. Now that URL again is helpscout.com slash experience this. And we'll see you next week for another Question of the Week. Surveys, reports, studies, and reviews. There are some great resources that look at consumer behavior to find emerging trends and established patterns. We dig through the data and bring you the key takeaways in this edition of Inside the Numbers. Customer reviews are everywhere. And if you're like most people, you do your fair share of reading the reviews before making a major purchase. A new study out by Bright Local looked at consumer review behavior, and there were some very interesting findings. Every year, the local consumer review survey explores the ways in which consumers use online reviews to choose, trust, and understand businesses offering services in their local area. Now, since its inception in 2010, the report is aimed to help local businesses, consumers, and marketers understand the impact customer reviews can have on consumers and also see which trends change each year. 
this year's most interesting findings we are going to share with you right now. Joey, start us off. All righty. More consumers are reading online reviews than ever before. In 2021, 77% always or regularly read them when browsing for local businesses. That's up from 60% in 2020. And 78% say they use the internet to find out information about local businesses more than once a week. Now, this is something where we know reviews are important. We know they're only increasing importance. If you don't have a review plan and a review strategy in your business, you got to start focusing on that right now. Even if you're just a local business that you think, oh, we don't have the exabytes of data to crunch, you should, can at least figure out how you're going to handle your reviews from people that live in your community. Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me about those numbers is 77, 78%. That's almost everybody. That's a big majority of your customers. Takeaway number two or finding number two, 67% will consider leaving a review for a positive experience, while 40% will consider leaving a review for a negative experience. Now, I love this one because it is the basis or a similar study was the basis for my book, The Experience Maker. Because I was stunned to learn that people are more willing to share positive experiences than negative ones. Now, of course, the other number that comes with that is that two-thirds of customers don't remember the last time they had a positive experience. So that's why we don't see as many positive experiences out there. But actually, when I wrote the book, those numbers were a little bit smaller. If I recall, it was about 30% of customers would leave a negative review and 50 would leave a positive. So they've both gone up, uh, which of course uh, fits in well with that first stat that you shared that more people are uh, reading reviews, they're also leaving reviews. Another stat that came up that I thought was really interesting was that 87% of people say they would leave a review if their initial negative experience was turned into a very positive one. So Chris still could have left a positive review about that meal that he got if they had just resolved it into a positive experience. Just send them the stakes already. Okay. Uh, the third kind of interesting stat that came out here that uh, I enjoyed was 89% of consumers are highly or fairly likely to use a business that responds to all of its online reviews, while 57% said they would be, quote, not very or not at all likely to use a business that doesn't respond to reviews at all. Here's the thing, friends. We all could get better at this. I'm guilty of this. When you get a review, take the time to respond. Take the time to chime in. Thank them for the review. Clarify something in the review. Tell them you're excited to see them back again, even if it's a good review. We're, we're all pretty good about responding to the bad reviews. Where we could double down our efforts is making sure we respond to the good reviews as well. And to be fair, there are some platforms that don't let you do that. And I find that to be very frustrating. I know, Joey, you do as well, that... Uh, our friends at Amazon don't let us respond to book reviews anymore. And uh, good ones are bad ones. And I think that's a mistake. I'm not sure why they made that change. I know there are other platforms that don't let businesses respond. And I do think that's wrong. And so if you can respond, I absolutely agree with you. You absolutely must. And I'm hoping that some of the uh, other companies that are, for whatever reason, not letting companies respond uh, might decide to change that policy. Another interesting statistic was that recency no longer matters as much as it once did. The amount of people who only pay attention to reviews left in the past two weeks dropped from 50% to only 
So it seems like it used to be that we were only considering recent reviews as being important, which I think is not correct. And so more recently, people have decided they're going to dig back a little bit further to get a better picture. I totally agree with this. And in fact, I find myself uh, behaving this way. If I want to get a feel for where the arc of the experience has been, I'll dive in and read reviews for a while. I especially do this with hotels. I find myself thinking like, all right, let's, you know, the most recent review may be terrible, but let's go back a little and just see if it is a new problem or if it's just that person writing the review. Have you ever found yourself wondering which business types do consumers pay the most attention to reviews for? Well, wonder no more, friends. 84% said service-related businesses and tradespeople. 83% said care services. And 82% said healthcare. What's that mean? If you are in a service-related business or trade, if you are providing care services, or if you are in healthcare, you got to be on the reviews because those are the people who are paying attention to them the most. And finally, 62% believe that they've seen a fake review for a local business in the past year. And the top sources for fake reviews, according to consumers, are Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Fascinating, right? Because that's also probably the top three places people go for for reviews, reviews, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I thought this was a really interesting study. Um, As I noted, it's been out since 2010, but I hadn't read it before. And that's why I wanted to bring it to the show. And I think the takeaway is fairly clear. Reviews are here to stay. It's a, it is built into how people shop, whether they're shopping for hotels or restaurants or retail stores or books or products or what have you. We all kind of go and read the reviews before we make a purchase. And now we can't control all of the reviews that we get. And in fact, I know you and I have talked about before that uh, it's uh, actually been proven on Amazon that you don't want a 5.0 star rating. You want to get a couple of reviews that aren't 5 stars so that you actually look more authentic. I'm I'm proud to say now I have one of each of the star numbers on my reviews. Exciting. So full range. Exactly. So hopefully that makes it incredibly credible. But pay attention to this stuff because your customers certainly are. You can find the local consumer review survey at brightlocal.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show, yay you, we're curious. Was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do, don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience This.